Thank you. Brother Wade, thank you for those kind words of introduction. More than grateful. Thank you. Mr. President, thank you for having a poor boy who grew up in rural Alabama to come here to Montreal. My beloved brothers and sisters, I must tell you that I'm honored, I'm very pleased and happy to be here. Only by the grace of God Almighty that I'm standing here tonight. You know, I've been here most of the day and met some of you. There's a warm spirit here. Here a few short years ago, was deeply inspired and moved, and I've been deeply and inspired and moved again. To come here 50 years after Martin Luther King Jr. came here and spoke. It's almost too much. 50 years ago, I was only 25 years old. Had all of my hair and a few pounds lighter. <laughs> and to come back, come here, where Dr. King walked and talked and spoke and preached. It's almost too much. I admired, I love Martin Luther King Jr. He was my friend. He was my leader, my hero, my inspiration. He was almost like a big brother. When I was growing up in rural Alabama, 50 miles from Montgomery, outside of Troy, 15 years old in the 10th grade, I heard of Rosa Parks. I heard the words of Martin Luther King Jr. on our radio. The action of Rosa Parks and the words and leadership of Dr. King inspired me, moved me, challenged me. I grew up asking my mother, asking my father, my grandparents, and my great-grandparents, why? Why this? Why that? And they were said, that's the way it is. Don't get in the way. Don't get in trouble. But the spirit, the spirit and the words of Dr. King and the action of Rosa Parks inspired me to get in the way, to get in trouble. And I think it's time for the church to get in trouble again. I, I happen to believe with all my heart, with all my soul, with all of my being, that the American church is too quiet. We need to make some noise. We need to speak up and speak out and find a way to get in the way, to get in trouble, good trouble, necessary trouble. Others are making noise. Others are speaking out. We must get in trouble.
I was so inspired by the teaching of Martin Luther King, Jr., the action of Rosa Parks, the teaching of Jesus. That in 1956, 16 years old, with some of my brothers and sisters and cousins, we went down to the public library in a little town of Troy, Alabama, trying to get library cards, trying to check out some books. And we were told by the librarian that the libraries were whites only and not for colors. I never went back to that public library until July 5th, 1998, for a book signing of my first book, Walking with the Wind. And hundreds of blacks and white citizens showed up at the end of the book signing. They gave me a library card. Sometime as believers, as believers in the teaching of the great teacher, we have to let the Holy Spirit move us and step out there with grace, with faith, and love, and not be afraid. Now, some of you may ask, John Lewis, how do you get involved in the American Civil Rights Movement? Well, when I was 17 years old in 1957, finishing high school, I wanted to attend a little college called Troy State College, 10 miles from my home, now known as Troy University. So I wrote a letter to Dr. Martin Luther King, Jr. I didn't tell my mother, my father, my grandparents, any of my sisters or brothers, any of my teachers, Dr. King wrote me back and sent me a round-trip Greyhound bus ticket, invited me to come to Montgomery to meet with him. I sent off an application to another little school called American Baptist Theological Seminary, now known as American Baptist College, accepted me. Now, let's go back for a moment. Now, some of you may know the story when I was growing up on this farm that my father bought in 1944 for $300, 110 acres of land. My family still own it today. On this farm, we raised a lot of cotton and corn, peanuts, hogs, cows, and chickens. And it was my responsibility to care for the chickens, and I fell in love with raising chickens like no one else could raise chickens. I know as good Christians, you don't know anything about raising chickens. But uh, I became very good at raising chickens. I know some of you know about Popeyes and Bojangas and Churches, Kentucky Fry, but you don't know anything about raising chickens. And to take the fresh eggs, mark them with a pencil, place them under their setting hen, and wait for three long weeks for the little chicks to hatch. Some of you may be saying, now, John Lewis, why do you mark a fresh egg with a pencil before you place them under the setting hen? Well, from time to time, another hen will get on that same nest, and there will be some more eggs, and you have to be able to tell the fresh eggs from the eggs that were already under the setting hen. You follow me? Don't fool me. You don't follow me. <laughs> so when these little chicks were hatched, I would fool these setting hens. I would cheat on these setting hens. I would take these little chicks and put them in a box with a lantern, raise them on their own, give them to another hen, 
get some more fresh eggs, mark them with a pencil, place them under the setting hen, encourage the setting hen to stay on the nest for another three weeks. Kept on fooling and cheating on your setting hens. And when I look back on it, it was not the right thing to do. It was not the moral thing to do. It was not the most loving thing to do. It was not the most nonviolent thing to do. It was not the most democratic thing to do. But I was never quite able to save $18.98 to order the, the most inexpensive incubator from the Susan Roebuck store. Any of you old enough to remember the Susan Roebuck catalog? You, you really do? That, that big book? That heavy book? Some people called it a wish book. I wish I had this. I wish I had that. Well, I just kept on wishing. But as a little child, about nine years old, I wanted to be a minister. I wanted to preach the gospel. So with the help of my brothers and sisters and cousins, we would gather all of our chickens together in the chicken yard, like you're gathered here tonight. And my brothers and sisters and cousins were lined outside of the chicken yard, but they would make up the audience, the congregation, and I would start speaking or preaching. And when I look back on it, some of these chickens would bow their heads. <laughs> some of these chickens would shake their heads. They never quite said amen. But I'm convinced that some of those chickens that I preached to in the 40s and the 50s tended to listen to me much better than some of my colleagues listened to me in the day in the Congress. And some of those chickens were just a little more productive. At least they produce eggs. But that's enough of that story. It's enough. When we visited the town of Troy and Montgomery and Tuskegee and Birmingham, I saw those signs and I kept saying, why? They kept saying, that's the way it is. Don't get in trouble. But the teaching of Jesus told me, You have to get in trouble. You have to change things. You have to be bold, brave, courageous. Just get out there and push and pull and move. And it's all going to work out. So it was in Nashville meeting ministers and religious leaders. Listen to the words of Martin Luther King Jr. Some of you may not know this. I'm so grateful that I came under the influence of the great teacher, Martin Luther King Jr. and Gandhi. The teaching of Gandhi, the teaching of Thoreau. It was back in Alabama after Dr. King sent me a letter and a round trip Greyhound bus ticket and invited me to come to Montgomery during spring break in 1958 at the age of 18. A young African-American lawyer by the name of Fred Gray, who was also a minister, who was a lawyer for Rosa Parks, so Dr. King, and became our lawyer during the Freedom Ride and the march from Selma to Montgomery, met me at the Greyhound bus station on a Saturday morning and drove me to the First Baptist Church, pastor by the Reverend Ralph Abernathy and ushered me in the pastor's study. I saw Martin Luther King Jr. and Ralph Abernathy standing behind the desk. I was so scared. I didn't know what to say or what to do. And Dr. King said, are you John Lewis? 
So you're the boy from Troy. And I said, Dr. King, I am John Robert Lewis. I gave my whole name. And he started calling me the boy from Troy. So it was in Nashville, Tennessee, like so many other cities all around the South, that we started studying the way of peace, the way of love, the way of nonviolence, studying the possibility of building the beloved community where we can lay down the burden of hate and racism, the burden of separation, and move toward a community that respects the dignity and the worth of every human being. And we start sitting in. We had tested in in Nashville, Tennessee, in November and December 1959. And then after the students started sitting in here in North Carolina, Raleigh, student from A&T in Greensburg, and all across the South, we started sitting in. We sitting there in a peaceful, nonviolent fashion, waiting to be served. And someone would come up and spit on us. Or put a lighted cigarette out in our hair or down our backs. Pour hot water, hot coffee on us. I've been told not to get in trouble. I got in trouble. My first arrest was on February 27, 1960. I just turned 20. When I was arrested, I tell you, I felt free. I felt liberated. I felt like I had crossed over and have not turned back since. <laughs> if we believe in building the kingdom of God here, if we believe in building the beloved community, we cannot be afraid. We must be bold. We must go in faith. When I was left bloody on the Freedom Rides, just think, just think about it. Because some of you are so young in here. Just in 1961, the same year that President Barack Obama was born, Black people and white people couldn't be seated together on a bus leaving Washington, D.C., traveling through Virginia, through North Carolina, South Carolina, Georgia, Alabama, Mississippi. We were on our way to New Orleans to test the decision of the United States Supreme Court. A group of us, young black men, young white men, young white women, and young black women, we're beaten. We were jailed. We arrived in a little town called Rock Hill, South Carolina. My seatmate was a young white man. The two of us tried to enter a so-called white waiting room. And we were attacked by members of the Klan. We were left bloody and unconscious. May 1961. Many years later, to be exact, February 09, less than a month after President Obama had been inaugurated, one of the guys who had attacked me 
came to my office in Washington. He was in his 70s, son in his 40s, and said, Mr. Lewis, I'm one of the people that beat you. I was a member of the Klan. But I want you to forgive me. I want to apologize. His son started crying. He started crying. And I said, I accept your apology. I forgive you. They hugged me. I hugged them back. And all three of us cried together. It says something about the power of the Holy Spirit. It says something about the way of love, the way of peace, the way of nonviolence. It says something about the teaching of the great teacher. That the way of peace, the way of love, the way of nonviolence is one of those immutable principles that you cannot deviate from. Many of us grew to accept the way of peace, the way of love, as a way of life, as a way of living. As leaders of the church, if we want to build a beloved community, we cannot shy away from our responsibility to lead. Now, someone said long ago that the church must be a headlight and not a taillight. you got to get out there. There's too much suffering in America. There's too much suffering in our world. And I don't think the forces of history or the grace of God will be kind to us if we fail to speak up and speak out. We spend hundreds and thousands and millions and billions of dollars to build more bombs and guns. We don't need any more bombs. We don't need any more guns. We need to feed the people, close the people, and see that all of our children get the best possible education. We, as a people, as a nation, we have to come to that point and say, as for me and my house, I ain't going to study war no more. I think the American people, I think the people of the world are sick and tired of violence and war. We travel around the world, and then we said to the people at home, be peaceful. You have to live peace. The way to teach it, just show it, just live it. If you want to create a peaceful world, a world at peace with itself, if you want to create the beloved community, we must respect the dignity and the worth of every human being. We don't have a right to destroy another human being. I happen to believe from the teaching of Jesus that something very sacred in every human being and we don't have the right to destroy it or to abuse it. Respect each person. Is it possible, is it possible for us as part of the assembly of faith, just to be a little more human. 
to be kinder. I remember one day when I was first got to Washington, I was walking on Pennsylvania Avenue, short distance from my house, early one morning. And I came in contact, eye contact with a person, and I said, good morning. He said, I don't know you. Why are you saying good morning to me? <laughs> and as well, uh, I grew up in rural Alabama. I live in Georgia, and as Southerners, we believe in speaking to everybody. <laughs> and then he recognized me, and then he apologized and said, I'm sorry. I said, that's okay, brother. It's okay. It's all right. Let's just treat everybody with respect. Our time is too short on this planet for us to be mean. Sometimes I feel like in my line of work these days that some people get up mean. Oh, before they get up, they just dream mean. <laughs> they get up mean. They just throughout the day, they're mean. They go to bed and they just sleep mean. <laughs> Why is it possible, is it possible in America, in the 21st century, us to be kind to everybody. How can we build a beloved community when we're putting people down because of their race, because of their color, because of sexual orientation? What is it in us? We serve a God of love, a God of mercy, a God of grace. I must confess to you, in spite of being arrested 40 times during the 60s, and five more times since I've been in Congress, and I'm probably going to get arrested again for something, <laughs> I, must, I don't know of a single human being that I dislike or hate. I may dislike ways. I, I may say that to some of my friends and brothers, so you can do better. But I'm not going to hate you. Dr. King can speak to you tonight. He was saying, never, ever let someone pull you down so low to make you hate them. Love is a better way. Just love people and be happy in the process. Didn't you see me on the happy video years ago, a few years ago, sing with the happy song? Just be happy. Enjoy life. Smile. Just celebrate. God is good. God is good. If we believe it, let's show it. Put a smile on your face and put a pick up your feet and step with pride. Just do it. Just do it. I believe that. President said a few days ago when we were talking about the voting rights, he said, I don't understand it. But John Lewis is getting all of this energy from. He's been doing this he's, all these many years. He said, President, Mr. President, it's clean living. <laughs> it's, it's good living. And I'm happy. I am happy. Because I've seen change. 
So when someone tell me nothing has changed, I said, come and walk in my shoes. The sign that I saw saying white men, colored men, white women, colored women, those signs are gone and they will not return. The only places we will see those signs will be in a book, in a museum, on a video. Our country is a better country, but we are not there yet. We, we have a lot of work to do. Anyone going to do it? We have to build a coalition of conscience that we had during another period. I know people saying, well, this is the 21st century, not the 20th century. We didn't have social media. We didn't have a fax machine. We had an old mimograph machine. But we used what we had to bring about a nonviolent revolution, a revolution of values, a revolution of ideas. The musicians have all of the modern instruments. Some of the mass meetings and rallies, we didn't have the organs, the pianos, the horns, and trumpets but we used what we had. Even when we were in jail in Mississippi and Tennessee and Georgia and Alabama, we could sing a song. We need to sing sometime. We need to march sometime. Just do it. You feel good about it. When you're walking and moving as a group, you feel good. You feel happy that you're making a contribution. So I said to you tonight, don't give up. Don't give in. Don't give out. Keep the faith. And hold on. I'm going to tell you one little story. When I was growing up outside of Troy, Alabama, 50 miles from Montgomery, I had an aunt by the name of Seneva. And my aunt Seneva lived in what we call a shotgun house. How many of you have seen a shotgun house? Oh, it's pretty good, but most of you never seen a shotgun house. My aunt Seneva didn't have a green manicured lawn. Had a simple, plain dirt yard. Sometime at night, you can look up through the holes in the ceiling, through the holes in the tin roof, and count the stars. When it would rain, she would get a pail, a bucket, or a tarp, and catch the rainwater. If you don't know what a shotgun house is, really? <laughs> in the nonviolent sense, it's an old house, one way in, one way out, where you can bounce a basketball through the front door and it will go straight out the back door. <laughs> my aunt Steve lived in a shotgun house. But one Saturday afternoon, a group of my brothers and sisters and a few of my first cousins, about 12 or 15 of us young children, I planted in my unstained dirt yard. And an unbelievable storm came up. The wind started blowing, the thunder started rolling, and the lightning started flashing. And the rain started beating on the tin roof of this old shotgun house. Months and Eva called us all in together. She was terrified. She thought the house was going to blow away. The wind continued to blow. The thunder continued to roll. The lightning continued to flash. 
And the rain continued to beat on the tent roof of this old shotgun house. And we cried and we cried, and she started crying. And from one corner of this old house appeared to be lifting from its foundation. She had us to walk to that side to try to hold the house down with our little bodies. When the other corner appeared to be lifted, she had us to walk to that side. We were little children walking with the wind, but we never, ever left the house. I said to you, as member of the body of faith, the wind may blow, the thunder may roll, the lightning may flash, and the rain may beat on our house, but we never should leave the house of faith. We have to hold our little house together. There may be people coming on the scene saying things like, let's change the 14 up in that. Maybe there are people coming on the American scene saying, we don't want all these people in our country. We're going to build a wall. We don't want people to register to vote. We're going to make it hard. We're going to make it difficult. But some of you must stand up and resist and crowd. Some of you must be leaders. Some of you must be prophet. Some of you must find a way to get in the way. If not, the rocks will crowd. As, as a nation, as a nation, as a nation, and as a people, we've made a lot of progress. And their forces saying, we're going to go back. Their forces saying, we want our country back. Look, as the late A. Philip Randolph, the dean of black leadership during the 60s, the man who chaired the March on Washington in 1963, when Dr. King spoke, when I spoke, and others spoke, black and white leaders, Maybe our foremothers and our forefathers all came to this great land in different ships. But we're all in the same boat now. It's, so it doesn't matter. It doesn't matter whether we are black or white, Latino, Asian American, or Native American, whether we are straight or gay. We are one people. We are one family. We all live in the same house. So let's hold our house down. Hold our house together. Thank you very much.
set of you know, assumptions and walk with that whole story from there. Um, you knew that this was an important conversation that was important to him, and you had to take seriously what he had to say. But it was interesting when he finished speaking, there was just a moment of dead silence. And it was sort of like people were taking it all in and couldn't decide whether they were going to applaud or not if they weren't, hadn't been supportive of him. And then applause broke out and he got a standing ovation. And I found that to be a very positive sign that his message had come across and that even people who had not been his supporters when they came in had been moved by this address. And when it was over, we were walking across the way going over to the camp. Billy Burroughs turned to me and said, Jack, that has to be one of the most impressive sermons I have ever heard in my life. And I played applause. But there was this sense that uh, we've got to hear what this man has to say. And I think, I think there were some people who were converted that night. Um, and I think in that, in that sense, it was profound for our church. Amen. Uh, uh, before you stand, Congressman, uh, we've, we've had the benefit via video of individuals who were present 50 years ago and who have shared their recollections. There are others of you who are present now who were present then. And if you are among that number, who were in Anderson Auditorium 50 years ago and heard the speech that Dr. Martin Luther King gave, would you stand, please? Amen. Those, to those of you who were present, your spiritual energy, um, well, we sense it. 
And I think this whole assembly wants you to be aware that we are grateful for you and grateful for your attendance here. Uh, Congressman, we have uh, assembled a number of questions that this congregation would like to ask you. I will direct the questions to you and ask you to just uh, uh, be happy. Okay. Thank you. In a political climate in which money buys elections and informs policy, how do those of us without the dollars to compete financially impact change? And is getting in trouble enough? Well, in spite of all of the money, in spite of all of the resources, well, first of all, I must tell you and must confess, I, I think there's too much money in American politics. I, I do. Um, from, but maybe one day that would change. Maybe there would be a court decision that would reverse the decision of the present court and um, make it possible for the average person to have some impact. But even all of the guys and women with all of the money, they only have one vote. I happen to believe that the vote is precious, almost sacred in a democratic society, and we all got to use it. And I think too many of us, as citizens, we don't get out there and use it. And, and people within the religious community should understand it more than the average group. People suffered, died, bled, to get to vote, and we should understand, and it doesn't matter whether we're black or white, Democrats, Republicans, independents, that for a long time in our country, we, we kept women for participating. We kept African American for participating. And now we're trying to go back and have a select few, and we just have to insist in spite of all of the money, in spite of all the resources, people thought that was going to happen in, uh, in 08, in 012. But I said to some people, there were same hands that rocked the babies, picked the cotton, pulled the coin, cropped tobacco. Those same hands that worked in offices and bear their burdens in the heat of the day, use their vote. You know, there must be something good about the vote. Why did people didn't want people to have it? <laughs> there, must be, there must be something very powerful about it, really. So my philosophy is open up the political process and let everybody come in. One person, one vote. We can do it. America will be a better country. How can we as millennials bridge the gap between our activists and the older pioneers? Well, first of all, I love uh, young people. 
I love the zeal and the um, sense of uh, up and going. But I'm, I'm somewhat disappointed in a lot of the young people I run into. They forget our history. Uh, I was walking through a certain airport today in my own state, and uh, there was a one woman working behind a counter, and she was trying to tell these young people. She said, "Do you know? Do you know who that is? These kids all graduate of high school." I tell young people in Georgia and Atlanta. I said, "No, go down to the Civil Rights Museum. Go and visit the King Center. Go to Birmingham. Go to Montgomery. Go to Selma. Go to Memphis. Go to Jackson. Go to Little Rock." We need to teach all of our children, all of our young people, our history. All of our young people. So they will not repeat the mistakes that we made with our limited resources and information. Um, I think we did a pretty good job. I think you did. Thank you. <laughs> What three things can we do in this upcoming 2016 election to assist in getting a Congress that will serve the nation and its people? I, well, first of all, we all, all of us, must get out there and see that all of our people all across America are registered. First, get registered. And then turn out on election day and vote like we never voted before, and take other people with us. Um, as I said earlier, the vote is precious, so it's powerful, and the democracy is almost sacred, and we have to use it for good. Thank you, sir. What is the one thing you have learned in the movement that you would pass on to the younger generation? More than anything else, uh, to be hopeful, be optimistic, never become bitter, never hate. As Dr. King would say, hate is too heavy a burden to bear. And be prepared to forgive. Let me just try to give you one example. When I went back to Montgomery, Alabama, to Reverend Abernathy's church two years ago, and I think Wade was there, I'm not sure. Um, I think Wade Bowens was there, but some of the people here. A young police chief met us. The same church where I first met Dr. King and Reverend Ralph Abernathy. This chief came in, he was not even 50 years old. He said, Mr. Lewis, when you came here, in 1961, our police department was not kind to you. We're not kind to you and your colleagues. He said, today we have a better police department. He said, before anyone can become a member of this police department, they must know something about what happened in Montgomery, what happened in Birmingham, what happened in Selma. They must know something about Dr. King, about Rosa Parks. He said, we have a better police department today. This young chief is white. His deputy is African-American. His young deputy didn't even know he was going to step up and see all of this. 
He said, because of what you and your colleagues accomplished and what you did to make the state of Alabama our nation better, I'm going to take off my badge. And I'm going to give you my badge. I said, Chief, you can't do that. You're the chief of police. You need your badge. He said, I can get another one. And I tell you, that was one of those moments, one of those moments in this church. Police officers from Capitol Hill, local police officers in Montgomery and other parts of Alabama, and all of us stood there and we all cried together and started singing, we shall overcome and love. That's grace. That's the power of God Almighty. This is a four-word question. Were you ever afraid? That's a good question. Thank you, sir. At, at an early age, now, growing up in rural Alabama, the only thing that, that I was afraid of was thunder and lightning. And I've been very mindful of what is happening. <laughs> when, when, because I saw what lightning would do to fields, to pine trees, you know, start a fire. And when we saw it thundering, a lightning, my mother would call us all together in the house. And she would say, God is doing his work. And we'd be quiet. So we got all in the corner and we were quiet. We didn't move because we felt and believed God was doing his work. Sometime I would be out there working in the field and it started thundering and lightning. And I would say to my father, I said, Daddy, it's time for us to go. And he would say, Bob, it's far off. I said, no, I can feel it. It's close to me. And I, I left that field. I went home. But, but the way of peace, the way of love, the way of nonviolence taught me not to be afraid. When I would have been beaten and left bloody in Rock Hill, beaten and left bloody, in Montgomery at the Greyhound bus station, a beating on that bridge. I thought I was going to die. I thought I saw death, but I was never afraid. I believe that the power and the grace of God Almighty would take care of me or see me through. Amen. Do you have any advice for me, a 15-year-old girl who wants to get some bills passed into my state government during my youth legislature conference to help with social injustices? Yes. Organize. Organize your peers, your classmates. Organize your neighborhood, your community. Your Just come together and get the assistance of others to draft necessary legislation, and you lobby. You get out there and lobby. You call members, you email them. See, we didn't have emails. Social media, Facebook, we never heard of that. The internet, we don't know anything about that. So just get out there and use everything you have and push and pull. You can do it. You're never too young to get involved. 
If you still believe in nonviolence, how would you apply that to U.S. foreign policy? Well, you know, someplace, someplace along the way, a great nation must have courage and said, you know, we're not going to continue to spend our limited resources on bombs and missiles and guns. We're going to take care of our people here at home and help people around the world. Uh, since I've been in Congress, I made a mistake, and I regret it to this day. I spoke up and out against the Iraq war, and then after 9-11, I said we must send a message, but I would never, ever do that again. I butchered my conscience, and I would never, ever do that, and I regret that to this day. I, I don't vote for appropriation for missiles and guns, for bombs. We have enough bombs and missiles to destroy this planet. We, we don't have the right to destroy this earth, this little piece of real estate, poison it. We should use it for good and not to abuse it. I think that's our calling. And that's what members of Congress, individuals in the White House must understand. What we do must be in harmony with the universe. Thank you, Carson. What does healing from racial trauma, white supremacy, and institutionalized oppression look like? Well, some people would call it maybe it's the Canaan of God here on earth. Can we build a beloved community? Can we redeem the soul of America? I'm foolish enough to believe that we can. I think we all can become brothers and sisters and live in peace with each other. I think Dr. King said on one occasion, we must learn to live together as brothers and sisters or perish as fools. Gandhi put it another way, it is nonviolence or non-existence. When will the madness stop? Can we share, can we share the plenty of the earth? Can we have educate and teach and look out for all humankind? I believe we can. We may not get there in my lifetime, but as a people, as a nation, as a world community, I think we will get there. Please say more about the roles of politician and prophet and how they intersect and are different. Well, you, 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 there are some great uh, religious leaders, great um, ministers and others. Uh, I think in so many ways, uh, I won't say they're a necessary politician, but they um, happen to set the, uh, the standards. I think we should get politicians along with religious leaders 
to help humanize, humanize our nation. We, we should be a little more human. Just be human. Humanize the workplace. Humanize the media. Humanize corporate America. Humanize our institution. Just be human. When we act like human beings, you know, we're more like a family. We're one family. We all live in the same house. Not just the American house, but the world house. You know, families may have you know, a quarrel here and there, but you, I'll give you an example. Now, I grew up with six brothers and three sisters. Wonderful mother and wonderful father. When we would have a little spat of falling out, my mother would tell us to go outside. One walk to the right, one walk to the left. And when you come back to the front, you know, you got to hug or shake hand. If not, you're not coming into the house, really. <laughs> so we, that may sound a little, you know, a little simple, but we have to find a way, just be human. Yeah. Human beings should be human. Do you believe that in the movie Selma, your journey through the civil rights era was portrayed well? Oh, I, I've seen the movie a few times with different church groups, school groups. Um, I love the movie. You know, it was theater, it's drama. You take a little here, you add a little here. But uh, I think the point was made, it was very moving to me. Um, the first part of the movie, the bombing of the church in Birmingham. It just, it made me cry. And each time I've seen it, I uh, get to that point, go on that day, that Sunday morning when the church was bombed. I was visiting my family outside of Troy, and I received a call from the Office of the Student Nonviolent Coordinating Committee, you must go to Birmingham, you must get there. And as a matter of fact, my good friend Julian Bond met me there. And, um, I will never, never forget that day. But Selma told a story. A lot of people in America didn't believe it. That people stood in an unmovable line. People were asked to count the number of bubbles on a bar of salt. The number of jelly beans in, in a jar. There was one county in Alabama, Lowndes County, between Selma and Montgomery. The county was more than 80% African-American. There was not a single registered African-American voter in the county. In Selma, only 2.1% of blacks of voting age were registered to vote. A state like the state of Mississippi had a black voting age population of more than 450,000, and only about 16,000 were registered to vote. People were beaten, shot, killed. I met the three civil rights workers, Andy Goodman, Mika Scherner, and James Shaney in Mississippi. I think they did a good job. Thank you, Congressman. I've got Thank you. Thank you. Before you stand, I've got, I've got one more question. I've got one more question. Um, 
since you are, are so uh, energetic and enthusiastic as you should be, um, I, I want to say to you that you have, you have uh, this is very personal, but you have really blessed me. Uh, you have shared your questions and allowed me to kind of channel you and then to look into this man's eyes. And I wish that you could see the depth in his eyes and his facial expressions. It's, it's powerful. It's powerful. And I thank you for that. I wish I could channel it back. Ain't going to happen. Uh, uh, but do know that uh, we, are, we are in the presence of greatness. This, this last question uh, relates to uh, comments that uh, Congressman Lewis was making when we were in the green room. Um, uh, at least 50% of you will be very interested in uh, uh, this question and uh, the Congressman's response to it. It has to do with uh, the role of particular personalities and I, I see the names here, Jim Lawson and Diane Nash, and uh, the congressman has a particular perspective on the role of women in the movement. And uh, congressman, would you mind sharing a little bit about, well, well, about First this? of all, I thank you so much for all that you continue to do. Uh, thank you for leading a great institution. And uh, thank you for being willing to put me through these uh, questions. <laughs> No, thank you. You're gracious. J Jim, Jim Lawson, he was our teacher. This young Methodist minister taught us the way of nonviolence. Every Tuesday night at 6.30 p.m., a group of students from Fish University, Tennessee State, American Baptist College, Meharry Medical School, Vanderbilt University, Peabody, came to a little Methodist church called Clark Memorial Methodist Church. We studied the way of peace, the way of love, the way of nonviolence. We did it for an entire school year. We studied what Gandhi attempted to accomplish in South Africa, what he accomplished in India. We studied the role in civil disobedience. We studied what Dr. King was all about in Montgomery. So we were prepared. And Martin Luther King Jr. would come there and speak from time to time and would say that the students in Nashville, the Nashville movement, because of Jim Lawson, had a better understanding of the philosophy and the discipline of nonviolence. But one of the leaders there was a young woman by the name of Diane Nash. She um, was our chairperson, charming, smart. She was a student at Fisk. She was born in, in Chicago, lived in Detroit, started to Howard, decided to come to Fisk. And under her leadership, 
and with the help of Jim Lawson, the city of Nashville during the early 60s became the first major southern city to desegregate all its lunch counters and restaurants. Women, I believe this to this day, I'm gonna get in trouble, but it's good trouble. It's necessary trouble. Women did all of the, if I was not in the chapel, I would say this, women did all of the work. You know, I could use another word, but I won't use it. But women did all of the work. And I think women in the movement were discriminated against, really. It was, not, it was not Dr. King who suggested that people stay off the buses. It was a young woman by the name of Joanne Robinson, who was an English teacher at Alabama State College. She organized the students to take the leaflets out. And there were women, you had Gloria Richardson in, in Cambridge, you had Ruby Doris and Marion Wright and others in, in Atlanta. You had uh, Daisy Bates in, in Little Rock. You had Fannie Lou Hamer in, in, in Mississippi and others all across the South. But many of our local movements, there was something like our churches, now, not the Presbyterian church, some of the, <laughs> some of the other churches. We, a lot of the ministers treated the movement like it was their own church, like they were the pastor. And it was sort of saying to women what other people were saying about us, stay in your place, like this was a man's job. But a lot of the football players, oh, they said, oh, I can't be nonviolent. I can't do this. I, I'll be hitting someone. It was the women that got out there, got arrested, beaten, and went to jail. Whether it was the Freedom Ride, or the standing at the theaters, or the sitting at lunch counters, or marching from Selma to Montgomery, the young women led the way, and they never, ever received the credit. At the March on Washington, the leaders that, that spoke, for the most part, was all men. The 10 leaders were men. The so-called big six were men. And that must never, ever happen together in any movement in America. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you.